This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Last time we saw our next guest, it was at the Bloomberg 50. Yes. Big gala event. Little and wine. We were <laughs> honoring him among the ones to watch. And here he is. I know. Proving us right. Paul Rabel back with his co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Premier Lacrosse League. And Mike Rabel, the other co-founder and the chief executive officer yes. of the Premier Lacrosse League. The brothers back with us. With some big news, our own Scott Soschnick breaking it this morning this on Bloomberg. Some big investors getting into the game. Mike, tell us about it. Sure. Yeah, we uh, – so uh, Joe Ty uh, led the round with uh, return backer, Rain Ventures, uh, and then Brett Jefferson from Hildeen Capital. And why we like those investors is because they're actually all entrepreneurs and operators themselves. So this is a heavy lift, and having people who have operated before not only – build big businesses, but also own properties in sports and media um, allows us to pull from those threads of wisdom. It's nice that Ty plays uh, or played lacrosse too, right? That helps. Yeah, he played at <laughs> Yale and, and he's Defending also national champions. That's, right? that's exactly right. The Bulldogs are, are involved on our cap table beyond Joe. Uh, Colin Neville, who's involved at Rain Ventures, is, is also a Yale graduate. Uh, what we look at with Joe and, and all of our investors is their shared passion for yeah. lacrosse and the emerging opportunity with sports properties in media, cross sponsorships, the way uh, you know, big tech has allowed uh, folks like ourselves and, and operators in sport to get uh, pretty dynamic with our offerings from players to teams to league. I got Go ahead. Jason. Well, I just I want to talk a little bit about the rollout because, you know, we've been watching it, you know, from uh, arm's length distance. But we've got to spend time uh, with both of you. Uh, you know, one of the things and, and this is not just me saying this. People have really marveled at sort of the pace of the rollout, the news, you know, most recently taking an Amazon HQ2 like approach to yeah. picking the cities <laughs> right. um, for, you know, where where you're going to tour this summer. This seems very delightful. Deliberate. Take us inside that strategy. Paul. Sure, I appreciate that, Jason. So we we think about it uh, first operationally, like what's best for the business and how can we optimize that. And we started by building this tour based model, uh, which allowed us to uh, book venues at state of the art stadiums in sports and bring all of our teams into each of those venues in a major market city for each regular season game, all the way through all star playoffs and championship. These then announcements that we think through both critically from a marketing perspective, uh, we look at sports as you know, 95% consumed through one medium or another. The other 5% is when you're in person at an event. Um, and so how do you constantly keep the conversation going? How do you hack attention? And that's through deliberate rollouts of programming and, and, and different things and different initiatives that we have. Um, to Mike's point when he, when he expressed it earlier, Starting a new pro sports league is a heavy lift, yeah. and there are so many tenants that we're continuing to build out and launching along the way. So we have an announcement calendar that is our IP, and uh, we're very meticulous about how we're thinking through not only the annual programming, but when eyeballs are on screen during lacrosse season, which is you know, 15 days away or so, with, with counting spring. Right. College lacrosse has started. 
March, April, May, June, and through August are, uh, are the hot months. So we try to uh, prime our audience around a lot of the stuff that we're announcing and then go heavy during that time period. What are you hearing in your conversations with investors, with um, content distribution folks? Because it's interesting. I was thinking about Charlie Ebersole, who yeah. we had here, uh, the Alliance of American Football, right? It just premiered. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there is incredible demand for live sports, mm-hmm. and it's traditional sports, but also kind of branching out. They, yeah. This is a startup league that got viewership yeah. better than the NBA yeah. on Saturday night. What do you take yeah. from those sorts of well, – How do you benefit uh, sure. off of it? So uh, the AAF benefited from having a, a prime uh, inventory slot on CBS. Um, and obviously it's, it's a great product on the field and there's some innovation behind it. Um, but we're doing the same thing. Right. Uh, it was a key pillar for us to go out and have a network partner like NBC. Right. Um, and we have uh, uh, main uh, inventory across our platform, not only on their flagship station, but also across NBC Sports Network, which is going to allow people who have never seen the sport of lacrosse to watch it uh, and allow us to innovate because we are controlling the production uh, with in partnership with NBC, but also innovate in that production to allow people and consumers, not just hardcore lacrosse fans, you know, the six million hardcore lacrosse fans domestically, but net new fans to really see how fast and exciting and get underneath the helmet mm-hmm. of this game. Yeah. In media and in sports, what's so uh, attractive to the consumer is that you have the confluence of you know, these sports celebrities in many cases, they're idolized by a young kid or, or a family, and you follow them, get access to them through social media. They're competing on behalf of their team in a league that captures a lot of communal uh, support. And then why sports remains the most powerful form of original programming is that you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And so networks are willing to pay for that because that suspense keeps the viewer on screen for longer than any other form of programming because you have to watch till the end to see what takes place. Unless it's a boring Super Bowl. No, Unless it's a boring Super Bowl. There you go. And then they're just watching for the commercials and getting, you know, getting up to go to the basketball. Nothing's boring with Bill Belichick. There you go. That's true. All right. So, Paul, got to ask you, you know, a lot of uh, former lacrosse players listening out there. Give us sort of the lax update in terms of you, you've recruited some great players, yeah. some great coaches, I think, since the last time uh, we talked about what's the next step? Is the next step where you're going to be? Yeah, so we, we have yet to announce our, our locations. That will be coming this week. And in subsequent weeks, we're being very deliberate around the rollout of that. We also have our, our ticket sales strategy that has to run in parallel. Uh, so there's a business nuance to it, and then there's the marketing rollout, and then there's the partnerships with the venues that are going to lean in with those shoulders as well. We announced recently our head of lacrosse in Josh Sims, who is a Hall of Famer and, and uh, All-American at Princeton uh, with 15 years of executive experience in sports and business development. He's functioning as our commissioner, which is a little bit different because we're a true single-entity league where most commissioners in team sports leagues are serving the ownership groups individually, mm-hmm. but he's overseeing product and competition. We have 160 of the top players in the world that are going to compete on these six teams, and we announced six of the top head coaches as well in lacrosse, led by Dom Starja, who won four national championships at the University of Virginia as a Hall of Famer himself. I got to commend, though, what you guys are doing, because it's really a holistic approach in terms of thinking about the athletes, the players. You've also got a youth initiative that Mm -hmm. you're doing. You're also giving back, so it's pretty cool. Will you come back as you get closer to the first? uh... We would love to. Great. Good. 
Paul Rabel, co-founder, chief strategy officer for Premier Lacrosse League, also going to be playing, correct? correct? All right. And Mike Rabel, co-founder and CEO of the Premier Lacrosse League. Big news today on some big backers, well-known in the yeah. investment and lacrosse world. Small caps, check it out. They are back with a vengeance, up 21% if you look at the uh, Russell Small Cap Index from the Christmas Eve low. Our next guest uh, probably knows that really well. The American Century Small Cap Value Fund, it's an outperformer, beating just about all of its peers over the past five years, returning on average annually more than 10% a year. Miles uh, Lewis is Portfolio Manager of American Century Investments. They've got uh, roughly $160 billion in assets under management. Miles joining us on the phone right here. Here in New York. Nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, small caps have had quite the bounce back here. Tell me, walk me through kind of your trading strategy and your thinking uh, end of November through December through the end of January. Sure. Thanks, Carol. Uh, yeah, it was a wild ride in the fourth quarter. Um, in terms of how we invest, you know, we, we invest for the long term. We're bottom bottom up fundamental stock pickers. And what we saw was that in the fourth quarter, particularly in November, December, there were some pretty compelling opportunities from a valuation perspective throughout the market. Uh, Small caps in particular got really, really uh, cheaply valued. If you look kind of at small versus large, historically small caps trade at about a two to three turn premium versus large caps. And that spread narrowed to about parity in late December. And that's something you don't see very often. So we thought small versus large looked very good. Uh, and we saw lots of opportunities in individual stocks uh, as, as uh, the, the market kind of got concerned about a potential recession in 2019 and a variety of other concerns that were out there. And a lot of that seems to have reversed just with the, uh, the change in the calendar year here in 2019. And so, Miles, what do you see specifically in – Banks, because that's where a, a lot of your holdings are concentrated here. What is it about that specific sector that uh, makes you bullish? Yeah, that's that, that's a space that we we do like a lot. We have a lot of conviction in it. If you go back to that time frame, November December, bank valuations for for small cap regional banks, which I'll I'll kind of define as uh, the KBW Regional Bank Index, also called the KRX got down to about 10 times earnings in December, and, and that's the lowest valuation on record. So, wow. so we felt that at, at 10 times, uh, the banks were not only discounting a recession in 2019, they were discounting a recession, in our opinion, that was comparable in magnitude to the one that happened in 2009. And we just, we just don't think that that's likely in terms of the, the banking sector. We, we know that there will be a recession at some point, and we have no idea how good or bad it will be. Uh, but we just think that credit losses in the banking industry are likely to be far more benign uh, the next time we go into a credit cycle, and that the valuations uh, that we saw in December were discounting something comparable to 09, and uh, we felt that that was uh, missing a lot of the, the fundamental and structural changes that have happened in the industry. How much to, and I'm thinking SunTrust, BBT, consolidation, I know a different scale, but nonetheless... Um, you know, whether or not we're going to see another big wave of consolidation and that would kind of uh, gobble up some of the small caps that you're that that you guys own. And is that part of your investment play? Uh, it, it is part of our 
our view on the banks, it's part of our view as, as small cap investors. A lot of the companies that we own tend to get acquired over time. Uh, that deal was a, was a pretty surprising deal. It was the biggest deal we've had in a long time. And I think if you kind of rewind to, to right after the election, a lot of people thought there would be a big wave of M&A. And there was an uptick in M&A, but it was in the smaller banks. So this was the first big, large deal that we've seen. And we do think that that's probably going to put pressure on some of the smaller banks ultimately to find a partner or to be acquired. And so we do think that that's constructive for the small cap regional banks. And so how do you pick among them? Or is it is it bank specific? Is it region specific? Do you have some sort of matrix where you uh, where you choose that? Because, you know, you seem to be I'm just looking at your holdings here. You're obviously uh, in in Texas with Texas Capital. Um, you've got Bank United, which I think is, you know, New York, Florida, if, if I've got that right, Valley National. So uh, how do you pick and choose here? Yeah, so we do a combination of things, but it's it's really bottom up. We start with uh, the quality of, of the asset, the quality of the bank. Uh, we, we we are very focused on quality, and that starts with credit quality, and then works its way through to the returns of the bank, the the franchise value, the core deposits, uh, the balance sheet, a variety of different things. And then we also look at the markets that they're in because that's really important. You can you can sort of think of a small cap regional bank as a a mutual fund for that local economy. So right. you mentioned um, you mentioned Bank United, which is uh, headquartered in Miami, Florida, with about two-thirds of their deposits in Florida. We like the state of Florida a lot as a market. Uh, the population there is growing at twice the rate of the, the rest of the country. The economy is more diversified than it used to be with more manufacturing jobs, so we don't think it's going to be quite as boom and bust as it has been in the past. And there's been a lot of consolidation in the Florida banking market. So we think Bank United at at one and a quarter times tangible book and and around 12 times earnings um, as the largest pure play bank left in the state is a pretty interesting investment opportunity. Compass Diversified Holdings, I believe that is your largest holding. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Tell me a little bit about that one. Based in Westport, Connecticut, we're talking to just below uh, $1 billion uh, market cap. What is it about this one in particular that you like? Yeah, so, so Compass lives uh, in, in gig sectors under financials, but we kind of view it as, a, as an opportunity to own uh, a basket of industrial and consumer stocks that are uh, in really niche middle market businesses. So Compass is effectively a private equity firm that right. owns about 10 or 11 different assets, and they tend to think very similar, uh, similarly to the way that we do in terms of investing. They look for good assets with strong free cash flow, opportunities to grow over time, things like that. Um, and this is a management team that we, we've gotten to know over the years. We, we have a lot of faith in their investment process and, and how they do things. And the stock is, uh, you know, unbelievably cheap at under 10 times earnings with a with a really attractive dividend yield pushing 8 or 9%. And that's a dividend that's uh, never been cut. And if you, if you bought the stock back in, I believe it was 2006, uh, you know, your, your basis would be negative right now just in the dividends that you've received over time. But you've got to be patient, right? Because they may hold on to those businesses for some time. Absolutely. And, and that's actually one of the things that we like about Compass is uh, they, they view their competitive advantage versus other private equity buyers as their ability to hold assets for a long time and to invest in them and to grow them and ultimately to sell them uh, and recycle those proceeds back into new new acquisitions that they'll make. But that is a good point. So, Miles, only about 30 seconds left. But given the approach that you take to these banks and the regions that they're in, what do they tell us about the economy here in the United States? Well, <laughs> what the banks themselves are telling you versus what the stocks were telling you are two very different things. Yeah. Uh, the stocks were telling you uh, in late 2000. Uh, 18 that there was a recession on the horizon 
Uh, when you talk to bank management teams, uh, which we do on a regular basis, they tell you that everything looks great. Because um, they're looking at their loan books. They should have a pretty good idea about that, right? Absolutely. They're getting real-time information, oftentimes monthly, on their customers, uh, which are small and medium-sized commercial businesses throughout the United States. And they tell us that not only are things uh, doing well, but in many cases, things are getting better. So there will be a a credit uh, turn at some point. They just don't see it on the horizon imminently. Miles Lewis, thank you so much. He's Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments, $160 billion in assets under management on the phone in New York. All right. Well, one of the things that certainly has Wall Street buzzing these days is the potential for a new stock exchange. We've already got 13 of them uh, spread across uh, the United States. It is getting complicated. Another thing getting complicated. I know. So many complicated (laughs) things. Uh, We got a chance to catch up with Nick Baker a little earlier today as we were taping our weekend Bloomberg Business Week show. Got a sneak peek at this story that is on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com today. Nick joins us from our Chicago bureau. All right. So, Nick, Remind us what this members exchange is, and maybe more importantly, who's behind it? Yeah, so the members exchange. There's 13 exchanges, as you noted. Um, please don't ask me to name all of them off the top of my head, although I could probably do it. We know you can. We won't test you. I can test you if you like. Um, please don't. Um, so, the, the, you know, it's, it's almost like there's so many of them already. There's dozens of dark pools also. So there's you know literally dozens of places where you can trade stocks. So the question is, why do we care about one new one and that being unleashed in that realm? And, and the reason is that it's being backed by nine really giant firms um, in, in, in trading. And so, you know, we pay attention because they've really got a good shot of, of making this something that takes uh, some good market share in the business. And why is a new exchange kind of potentially coming to life right now, Nick? What's kind of the backdrop here? Has to do what, about squeezing or, or pushing down fees, hopefully? Yeah, so um, basically it's all the current exchanges, all but one really. There's the Investors Exchange, which is sort of um, not part of this debate really. They're sort of on the side of, of everyone else. Um, it's the big three incumbents versus um, basically everybody else in the industry. Um, unhappy with the sort of rates that exchanges charge for market data and other vital stuff. And so um, really this group of nine firms that's created this new members exchange has sort of funneled some of that anger into the creation of a competitor. And I think one way of thinking about this business is that, well, you know, they sure they can create a successful business on its own that, that, that wins a lot of business. Part of it is just it's a bargaining chip in this fight. Um, they create this exchange. It's sort of a threat to the incumbents that, hey, if you, 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 have, you have not listened to us for years, as we've said, you're charging too much for stuff. Um, so here's our retort. We're going to create a competitor that's going to take business away from you. And as you say, there's some historical precedent here, very close to home for you. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like this is the first time this has occurred, um, right? So um, the reason why um, there's a big three in the exchange business is NYC, there's NASDAQ, but then there's also a company called SIBO uh, based here in Chicago, which uh, part of the reason why they are in the top ranks of exchanges is because they sort of followed a playbook that now the members exchange is trying to follow. And that is um, there were two startups that were backed by major traders uh, in the stock market. And kind of by virtue of the fact that they were able to follow a lot of orders to to this those upstarts they did really well and now SIBO kind of own, now owns those former startups and it has almost 20% of the market so this members exchange is 
founded by some of the same companies that were behind those um, earlier players. And that's part of the reason why you can you can you know think that this new exchange has a chance of success because and, they and followed a successful prior successful playbook. Right, and Nick, you know, one of the reasons that it worked was they were able to direct a bunch of trades, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not like they can uh, guarantee that all the trades that they want to execute are sent to this new market, but you know, there are things they can do to try to push volume to this yeah. exchange. So this is a reason to believe it might be successful. All right. So what's the prospect? It hasn't happened yet. What still has to happen in order for it to uh, come to life? Yeah, right now this thing is just talk. Um, I'm sure behind the scenes they're they're furiously writing up their uh, their Form 1, the, the document they have to file with the SEC. But right now that is not um, has not been filed with the SEC yet. So Probably the earliest this thing could actually launch would be later this year, probably more realistically sometime next year. Um, so they still have to go through a process to get approval to become the 14th exchange. Um, you know, what's interesting, too, though, doesn't this just make it more complicated? As I said, kind of kicking off, it's complicated. But you throw on another exchange and you got another exchange because you, you've got to be a part. If you're trading, right, you have to be a part of all of them. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's not like you the law says or the regulations say you have to plug into every exchange, but the reality is you don't have much a choice. Once a new exchange comes online, if you are trading on behalf of clients, you have to ensure you, you probably have to plug into that exchange because your obligation, if you have customers, is to make sure that they're getting the best price, basically the best price possible, the best execution possible. And so if you don't plug into a new exchange, that can, you know, an exchange that can cause a problem. So on its face, the issue that the, the industry has is that the current exchanges are charging too much. Well, creating a new exchange, on, you know, initially all it does is create a new exchange that people have to plug into. So that increases industry costs. The hope, I think, of the group is that um, while, yes, it creates one more exchange you have to plug into and makes the market that much more complicated, their hope is that it will push the incumbent exchanges to, to cut their prices for things so that long term it will result in costs actually coming down for the industry. Nick Baker is market structure editor for Bloomberg, based out in Chicago. That's where he joined us from our bureau there. His story, Wall Street's biggest traders may put a dent in stock exchanges. It's in Business Week this week. It's yes. a great read. Available now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This portion brought to you by SEI, built on advanced technologies and 50 years of innovation. SEI offers asset managers a comprehensive and flexible operations outsourcing platform. Go to SEIC.com slash IMS. All right, so it is time for the drive to the close. Doug Sioka is back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $670 million in assets under management, with us from Leewood, Kansas. So, Doug, I got to tell you, I, we, we, we were talking about this yesterday. I recently um, was brave enough to really look at my 401k again and just remind myself what happened in December, and uh, it was pretty depressing. So I'm just curious, walk us through what you were doing in December and then into January. 
Yeah, so good. Thank you for having me on again. In, in December was harrowing. It has been. It's been a good month to have forgotten, or I guess the fourth quarter in general was, was one we were happy to, to put behind us. And I think it's been an easy memory to allow to fade away, just because of the strength of January and the first part of February. So, you know, I, it, we had kind of made a, a comment in December, right? It, it began. It became very quickly a beta-based buying opportunity, meaning. It was a very good opportunity to broaden your exposure broadly to equities just because the washout had been so significant and indiscriminate and that proverbial baby was thrown out with the bathwater. And there were very few industry groups, actually there were none, that were unscathed. So there was indiscriminate selling, which in, in, in that regard, when it happens that swiftly, I think the best sort of equal and opposite reaction is to buy, but to buy very broadly so you don't end up being in one or two stocks if you want to be too selective that don't participate in the recovery. So that's a big part of what we did in December, Carol. And and then the, we've now had to get a little bit more refined. So it's gone from that beta-based buying opportunity, more of an alpha-emphasized undertaking, to where we do need to be a little bit more specific on situations, on companies, and on sectors, just given the incredible recovery that's taken place since that December 24th pullback, which was the low. So, Doug, tell us where the alpha is. What sectors especially are jumping out to you and, and where you're seeing some opportunity? Yeah, great question, right? I mean, there's three primarily, and, and two for one reason, and maybe the, the third on its own or independently is healthcare. We like a lot right now, Jason. I think it has always had this demographic tailwind. It's certainly been in the crosshairs, particularly big pharma, with some of the price controlling initiatives the government has been emphasizing and that play very well politically, regardless of which side of the aisle in which you sit. But it's, it, it really, to us, is at the crossroads of big data of AI, of, of biosciences, of nutraceuticals, of um, all different types of innovative integrative medicine that are combining to come up with some very cool and, and nuanced formularies. In, additional, in addition, these, this industry has so many little subsectors that possess fantastic renewable revenue streams, and the markets that they're addressing are very global. So that to us is a very attractive sector right now, and, and we feel like it has a lot of earnings growth capability and, and some significant horsepower, and the valuations are still very attractive. Financial yep. services we like a lot. Go ahead, Carolyn. Yeah, no, 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 no. Forgive me because I, I, I jumped in on you. But, I, yeah, financial services, talk a little bit about what the plays are here. And I'm thinking of, you know, the recent big bank merger, one that we hadn't seen li- the likes of in a long time, and I'm thinking about SunTrust and BB&T. Yeah, and I think that's the tip of the iceberg. We've had We've had a theme – that we'll see much more consolidation. And I do think in spite of some of the deregulation that's taken place since President Trump was sworn in, which has helped probably with more regularity infuse capital into the economy, and that's and probably been a big part of what has elevated GDP or enabled it to sustain this 2.5%-plus uh, projection. But I think that the, the consolidation is going to be a big theme going, in, or going through 2019, it is very difficult for smaller banks, regional banks, and even community banks to be super competitive, right? The country in general was reasonably overbanked. There are a lot of mistakes that had been made back during the mortgage market meltdown. The FDIC, as you guys remember, was closing seven, eight banks a week at one point in time. So there were a lot of good banks that were ushered in that took on some loss-sharing arrangements with the government that added scale to their operations. To take that to the next level, though, we think they need to joint venture or partner with those of equal size, like BB&T and SunTrust, or go on the aggressive sort of gobbling up um, strategy that I think is going to be more pervasive. And I don't mean that 
Goldman and Morgan Stanley will tie up or J.P. Morgan is going to buy a big discount broker. I think it's going to be the undercurrent, the regional, the sub-regional, and the community banks that are going to have to pair up in order to be sustainably competitive in this economy. So talk to us a little bit about consumer staples, because in, in some of the notes you sent over, I was sort of intrigued by your thoughts here, in part because it feels like you're getting to the heart of, candidly, like consumer behavior. We talk about it all the time. There's so much disruption in how, essentially, how customers are acquired, whether it's this mix of online and retail, whether it's a more enhanced experiential retail strategy. How do you invest into a space like that? Yeah, so I think in addition to those issues that you mentioned, Jason, there's very little uh, brand loyalty that's yeah. been retained. And I think things are just so quick to be competitive, again, because the landscape is so global. But I, if you looked at Chipotle, if you looked at Starbucks, if you if you saw what Procter & Gamble said in their last quarterly statement, everyone is, a, is is attempting to enhance the buying experience. And if it is be more experiential, then it becomes less psychologically commoditized. And it, in spite of not being brand loyal, it becomes brand convenient. And I think that is what's going to continue to, to, to create opportunity to penetrate the consumer in a vertical fashion as far as identifying products that they know you're going to need and those that then complement that need or enhance that need. That is a big part of the undertaking. This is a sector that undeniably will grow slower than things like energy and in, in, in the financials like we were talking about, certainly healthcare, but the dependability of this growth in an economy that isn't going to grow now four and a half, five percent. It's an economy that we hope will continue to grow to two, two and a half percent. And if you have reliable revenue streams because you've attracted customers to this experiential buying purchase, that's gonna create the repeat business that's gonna be critical to retaining shelf space. It's gonna be critical to product differentiation. It's going to be critical to enhancing your your distribution in, in a much more uh, broad-based fashion. So, okay, 30 seconds left. I'm setting the clock here, Mr. Sioka. So what's your best investment idea or, or most interesting investment idea that you've seen as of late? Wow, yeah. So you know, I, I think it's, it's a combination of those aforementioned um, sectors within, within U.S. stocks. But then we also, we, we've gotten on this emerging market bandwagon. Oh, you have. Right? If the U.S. is going to grow at, at, let's say, three two and a half percent this year, emerging markets are set to grow at two and two to two and a half times that. To us, that's very attractive. We think that the dollar strength that was so um, so negative for such a headwind for that sector last year and is going to moderate just given the recognition the Fed has that it cannot continue to raise rates as it had in the past. Doug Sioka, thank you so much at Kavar Capital Partners joining us from Kansas. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.